हेलो एवरीबॉडी वेलकम टू द 94th लाइव एपिसोड ऑफ आस्क अभिजीत आई होप यू डूइंग वेल दिस फाइन संडे इवनिंग गुड डे गुड गुड इवनिंग गुड नाइट टू ऑल ऑफ यू वेयर यू आर एंड लेट्स सी हु ऑल इज देयर आई कैन सी पंकज त्यागी तेजस विनीत मेघना रुद्रा रूपांता अक्षय तेजस डूंगर सिंह चौहान टेक्नो हब सत्विक प्रचित राठौर दीपक कुमार सूर्य किरण चिचिंग अनुराग आर्ग्या पुष्कर रुद्रा राजर्षि आकाश राठौर ओम गैलेक्सी प्रशांत आदित्य सिद्धांत अमिता शीतल एंड लॉट्स ऑफ अदर पीपल गुड इवनिंग गुड डे टू ऑल ऑफ यू इट्स ग्रेट टू बी बैक ऑन दिस लाइव शो सो टुडे वी गोना टेक क्वेश्चंस दैट यू हैव आस्क्ड इन द कमेंट्स सो लेट्स गेट राइट इनटू इट राइट अवे Okay what's the first question the first question is by Rutuja I'm aware that you're not really into bollywood movies but I would like to hear your thoughts on the kashmir files and the genocide of the kashmiri pandits so I haven't seen the movie yet I have had no time I would certainly like to watch the movie I've heard it's a very good movie the reviews are great the attendance is great it's doing very well so clearly it's being very well received clearly it's a movie that uh, has struck an emotional cord with the people of india it it is clearly a factual movie it does represent it does seem to represent the actual events as they happened so i would certainly like to see the movie so i cannot give you a review of the movie because i haven't seen it yet now what about the genocide of the kashmiri pandits well that's uh, it's not something that happened only in 89 1991 it's something that's happened in waves and it is a continuation of a longer process the process which culminated with the genocide of the kashmiri pandits and their expulsion from their homeland that process began about 1300 years ago with the genocide in iran so there was the arabic conquest of iran the iranian uh, iranian people the persian people were zoroastrians mainly at the time right they were their culture and civilization was closely related to our civilization they the persians are a daughter civilization of india so they were conquered by the arabs and the first uh, cultural etc et genocide happened there so they were very quickly within a few decades maybe 2 3 decades they were completely converted to the religion of the arabs and whoever was able whoever resisted i mean lots of killings happened lots of persecution happened many of these iranians the persians they escaped and the only place they could escape to was india and they still live in india today india was magnanimous enough to offer them refuge in our country so our king uh, our kings local kings i think it was a king it was a local king in gujarat who offered the persians the parsis refuge and a place to live in gujarat so that's why the parsis still exist in india uh, so the first instance of this process happened in persia the whole of persia within just 2 3 decades was completely transformed the culture was wiped out then after some time after a few centuries about a thousand years before today the indian province the indian region of gandhar underwent the same process terrifying atrocities terrifying genocide it happened there in gandhar we know that gandhar was a hindu and buddhist place hinduism buddhism same thing i've said said that 100 times hinduism and buddhism are the same thing different flavors of the same culture and traditions the whole of central asia was hindu and buddhist you will see 
ruins of te- Hindu temples and Buddhist stupas all across Central Asia. What happened there? The same genocide happened there. The same thing happened in Gandhar, which we now call Afghanistan. There is no Indian culture left there. It was India. I mean, we know it from the Mahabharata times, right? Gandhar. Uh, so what happened in Kashmir in the in 89, 90, 91? It happened first in Iran, then it happened in Central Asia, then it happened in our own province of Gandhar. And then, over the centuries, there were these these the Turkic sultans who ruled over over, over Kashmir, uh, Sikandar Butchikan or something, some barbarian by that name, a foreigner, a Turk, who committed untold atrocities. Um, lots of people were massacred. It was a complete full-scale genocide. And then, in the in the late 1980s and 90s, that's when uh, the whatever was left was done. So there are very few Kashmiri Hindus, Kashmiri Pandits living in Kashmir today. So that's the story. And this movie, obviously, it deals with only what happened. I, I, mean, I haven't seen it. I'm assuming it, it deals with what happened in 1891 when the last expulsion and, and genocide, uh, last uh, installment of the genocide was, was carried out. So I would certainly like to watch the movie. And uh, I would like to congratulate uh, Mr. Vivek Agnihotri, Pallavi Joshi ji, etc. for making this movie, this very important movie. It's being very well received and I will certainly want to watch it maybe in the coming week if I can find the time. But I will certainly watch it. So that's what I, what I can say as of today without having seen the movie. I, I know it's a very... Uh, it's not an easy movie to watch. It's very painful. It's like shocking and all. But I think it's something that everybody needs to go through. So I will certainly do that. Okay, Vashist says that the current war which is unfolding in Ukraine has two sides to it, as most wars. Uh, there's the military one and the political one. The more prolonged the war is going, etc., it's more, it's going to get more costly for Russia. Uh, so the question is whether the U.S. has deliberately pushed Putin into a war as a trap, where the political outcome is always uncertain to precipitate his downfall. Once he is out of the picture, once Putin is out of the picture, the polarity of geopolitical power may shift in back into the camp of the US. So he's saying that, uh, so Vashish is saying if, if Putin may win, although he may win militarily, if he cannot rally the Russian and the Ukrainian people to his cause, he's doomed. I disagree with that. Uh, it is, of course, see, the, the we have to understand the character, the nature of the Russian people. The Russian people are accustomed to hardships, unfortunately. It's a tragic land. Look at the history of the past 1,000 years. Look at the great Russian writers, Tolstoy, Turgenev, and many of these writers. Look at the stories they write. It's all tragedy. It's all tragic. The whole Russian history, the ethos is, is, is tragic. They have always had these powerful rulers, Tsars, you know. Uh, Nicholas the Great, uh, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Catherine the Great, and so on and so forth. She was a Tsarina, tsarina of, of, of course. So the thing about Russia is this. And then we had people like Stalin and so on. The thing about Russia is this. The people of Russia will tolerate hardship. But they will not tolerate failure. They will not tolerate a weak ruler. And Mr. Putin is not a weak ruler. The people of Russia know what they are in for. They understand that, that the West does not consider them as equals. The West wants to see Russia destroyed and fragmented. The people of Russia understand this. Russia is not a Western nation. Okay, so uh, 
what the the people of russia will not tolerate is failure military failure or political failure hardships they will tolerate they have been accustomed to hardships for the past 1000 years so that is not an issue so uh, i would not agree that he cannot if he cannot rally the people to his cause he is doomed if he, all he has to do is he has to succeed he has to succeed in his political and military objectives the short term objectives of acquire, of of capturing ukraine and whatever he want, he intends to do with the country and long term he has to whatever else he is doing he needs to pursue that and he, he has to succeed at that and if you look at his track record over the past 20 years he has been a successful ruler and that is what the russian people want they don't mind hardships they even tolerated stalin but they stalin was brutal he did untold uh, terrifying terrible things on the russian people lots of people unfortunately died as a result of his uh, policies but at least he was successful and he was able see the thing that the ussr was able to achieve they took a broken country a broken nation and they built it into a superpower within just a few decades without destroying the world without committing genocide all over the world and without plundering and looting the rest of the world the english speaking people who rule the world today they were able to achieve the superpower status by committing atrocities genocide and plunder on a global scale the russians did it without committing genocide and plunder and destruction on a global scale right they were able to industrialize the country and uh, yes there was a terrible holodomor the terrible famine and the all, all the repression that stalin did and in later rulers also did and of course we know that millions of people died as a consequence of these policies some of the policies were misguided some of them were just terrible but overall from the big picture perspective the nation became a superpower they they had to pay a terrible price but they did not make the rest of the world pay the price for their rise so that is something even the english speaking world has not been able to achieve to rise on its own without destroying the world so that is something they were able to do it and the russians are rightfully justifiably proud of what they were able to achieve at that great cost so they will not tolerate failure they want success they will endure hardships they are a hardy people now has the us deliberately pushed putin into this war as a trap of course they have of course they have they cornered the us uh, sorry not the ussr we it's kind of interchangeable right these days so they cornered russia they put russia into a corner they slowly encircled russia see the americans have they always need a big enemy a, a, the uh, americans need bad guys if you don't have bad guys how will you play the role of the global super cop the global policeman so you if even if there are no bad guys you need to invent bad guys so they first uh, nurtured saddam hussein and then suddenly all of all of a sudden they painted him as a bad guy they kind of um, encouraged him to invade kuwait in uh, early 19 early in the early 90s 1990 or 1991 whatever there was and then they painted him as a, as a bad guy and so on and so forth so they need bad guys so putin actually wanted to join nato but they did not allow him to do that and they, they slowly expanded nato eastwards they encircled him they placed nuclear weapons in various countries like turkey netherlands other places as well right to encircle russia and then ukraine was the line that uh, putin could not allow them to cross because that would be just uh, it would it would indicate it would signal to nato to the us that we are powerless we we will just uh, we we will allow you to just keep 
going eastwards unchecked. So they pushed Putin into a corner and they anticipated, of course they anticipated, the Americans, that eventually this eastward expansion is going to lead to war. And they have used Ukraine as the cannon fodder for the war. So the, the people of Ukraine are suffering, are paying the price for the American policies, as it's always been with various nations. So that's what's happening. I don't see Mr. Putin uh, falling. The Americans need a few bad guys, and they would also not want Mr. Putin to uh, to fall. So that's what is happening. They have certainly pushed him into a corner, and they anticipated the reaction that they would get from him and maybe they wanted it. Maybe they want a completely bipolar world, which is what we are seeing, uh, what's emerging, right? So yes, so that uh, that thing I would certainly agree with. Ria says, even if Russia manages a regime change in Ukraine, how likely is it that the Ukrainian people will accept the no, new pro-Russian regime and not choose another pro-West regime, taking into account the rising negativity among the masses against Putin? I don't see any negativity rising among the masses. If you if you see the Western media, if you see the Indian media, they will paint a certain picture of the world. But that doesn't reflect the exact accurate reality. They are saying Putin is losing the war. They have encircled the capital city of Kiev, but they are still losing the war, apparently. If India and Pakistan go to war, India uh, captures large parts of Pakistani territory and encircles Islamabad, can you claim that India is losing the war? And they are saying that lots of Russian people are demonstrating and protesting against Mr. Putin. Where? So these are fabrications created by the media and various... uh, think tank analysts and all that. The problem in India is that we are all, we only consume English speaking, English language news. And that's why we are so susceptible to fall to the propaganda that emanates from the English speaking world, from the West. Our media simply parrots what they say. So that's why we get this feeling. Now, what about the Ukrainian people? Will they accept the new regime or not? Who cares? The people... (laughs) See, my dear friends, Uh, let me introduce some realities of the world to all of you. People don't matter in the long run, in the big picture. It's the rulers who decide and the people have to accept what is done. In the West, they call this democracy. So you have this uh, cycle of voting every four years, every five years, whatever, and you elect somebody and that person comes to power, uh, comes to office. But the person who is in office, is that person really in power in the real sense? Who really uh, uh, decides policy makes decisions. Think about it. Right. So uh, as far as Russia is, see, let's talk about Ukraine. Will the people of Ukraine accept this regime or that regime? Ukraine was part of the USSR for how many decades? And did the people of Ukraine have any say in whether they want to accept the USSR regime or reject it? No. They simply accepted it. Whatever was done, they had to accept. Look at China. Do the people of Tibet have any say in who rules in Beijing or whether they want to accept the rule of Beijing or reject it? They have no say in it. Do the people of Hong Kong have any say in it? So please understand, my friends, whether it's an autocratic country or whether it is a country that looks like it's democratic, it doesn't really matter. People are easy to manipulate through media, through entertainment, through various, uh, through through government propaganda and so on. Media is all propaganda. Please understand this. The BBC, the BBC, 
is the propaganda arm of the UK government or the UK regime, whoever is ru really ruling the UK. And understand this also, that the UK is a colony of the US from the days of Tony Blair. The UK is nothing but a vassal state of the US. The real power, the only power in Europe is the United States. So you have this entire process, this circus of democracy and also it keeps the people happy. But power is power and power doesn't really care about democracy or autocracy or anything. Power is the same everywhere. So it doesn't matter whether the Ukrainian people, U Ukrainian people like it or not. You know what people like? People like stability. People like peace. People like law and order. People like a good future for the children. As long as these things are provided and the right signals and noises are made, people are happy. So that's how it's going to be. As long as Mr. Putin succeeds and he is able to stabilize Ukraine and give the people of Ukraine long term, a long-term good future, they will happily accept whatever is given to them. Right. Okay, Russia had warned NATO that it would take action on any country that imposed a no-fly zone over Ukraine. What is the meaning of no-fly zone and its significance? What is a no-fly zone? See, anybody can declare uh, a no-fly zone. Let's, uh, well, to understand this, let's look at the map because the map gives us a better idea of, of what these things are. So, are you able to see it? Yes, there you are. So this is the nation of Ukraine. Ukraine. So let me go to a different website for a change. Let's go to flight radar and, and see how things look on flight radar. Shall we do that? Let's do it. So let's move out from India and go eastwards. Oh, sorry, westwards. So uh, this, this website shows you in real time uh, the locations of most of the aircraft that are flying around in the world. And what you see right here in Europe is you see this big gaping hole over this region, which is Ukraine and east of Ukraine. There are flights coming in and out of Moscow and all, and some flights over, over Russia, but you can see a big gaping hole over here in Ukraine over Ukraine and other places. So this is a de facto no-fly no fly zone. It means that uh, aircraft, commercial aircraft are, are not flying over this region. Now that is voluntary. They know there's a conflict happening there and they, they don't want to catch a stray missile with a mind of its own. So that's why all commercial aircraft are staying away from that region. So that is voluntary. It is out of self-preservation. Now, what is an actual no-fly zone? It is when a country decides or declares that over this whatever particular geography, nobody is allowed to fly planes. So that's when that's what you can do when you achieve air superiority over a country. So, for instance, when uh, I believe that uh, when the Americans invaded Iraq. They had declared a no-fly zone over Iraq, which means nobody was able to come in. No plane was able was allowed to enter the airspace over Iraq without explicit U.S. military permission. Only American military planes were allowed to fly over this region. So that's a no-fly zone. It means we control the skies. We will not allow anybody without our express permission to come to to enter this airspace. That's what it means. So what does it mean when a nation? imposes 
or declares a no-fly zone. It is not enough to declare it. You have to enforce it. So Ukraine is right now um, controlled more or less by Russia, right? And we know that they have achieved air superiority over Ukraine in the first few hours of the war. So, okay, let's not go to Kharkiv. So that's what we know. Now, if the Americans were to declare a no-fly zone over Ukraine, it would mean that they would say nobody is allowed, no plane is allowed to enter the Ukrainian airspace without American permission. But Ukraine, the airspace is already controlled by Russia. So if the Americans declare a no-fly zone, it is essentially, they are contesting the Russian dominance in Ukrainian airspace. And they are telling Russia that you can, your planes cannot uh, enter Ukraine without our permission. But Russia already has uh, air control, air superiority in, in Ukraine. So to enforce this no-fly zone, the Americans would have would actually need to take military action to enforce it, which means they would have to send their fighter planes and engage in aerial battles with the Russians, with the Russian air force. So that means you are actually going to war with Russia. To, to declare a no-fly zone and then not a, be able to enforce it would indicate that you are toothless and you are powerless. So no country will declare a no-fly zone without being able to enforce it. And the Americans, if they enter into a conflict with the Russians, it could escalate beyond anybody's imagination. So it is not something they want to do. It's not something anybody wants. It could lead to a wider escalation of the conflict. The Americans and Russians have not fought for decades. And if if a shooting match begins, it may go to any extent. It could even lead to nuclear war. So that's why the Americans are not in a position to, uh, to enforce, to, to declare and enforce the no-fly zone. And the Russians have made it very clear that we will not tolerate such a thing. You try to do it, we're going to shoot you down. So, right now, that's not going to happen. The Americans know that that is a line they cannot cross because that would lead to a much wider escalation of the war. It would essentially lead, it could very likely lead to a much wider escalation of this war and, and many more countries could, could get involved, which essentially is saying we are precipitating a third world war, which is something nobody wants. Right, next question. Oh my God, what on earth is this? Help. Okay, so let's see what this says. Lots and lots of wonderful people are saying Brahmos is not nuclear capable, contrary to what people think. Brahmos is not nuclear capable missile. Brahmos is not nuclear powered. Brahmos is not nuclear capable. Brahmos is not nuclear capable missile. According to MTCA rules, blah, 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 blah. Zeta leadership says Brahmos is not designed to carry nuclear warheads. And Subodh is saying, again, this is not nuclear capable. And MTCR laws and all that whatever. So this is just a small sample of the number of comments I have received saying that you are wrong. Brahmos is not a nuclear capable missile. Are Baba, where do you get this information from my dear friends? In what world are you living? Is it coming from your favorite YouTuber or your favorite uh, media channel? Who's telling you that the Brahmos is not nuclear capable? Let me, let me, I mean, let me show you something. So please take a look at this. What does it say? This is the uh, um, very uh, famous portal called the National Interest. It's an American website. 
What does it say here? India's Sukhoi 30 fighters now come with nuclear BrahMos missiles. So what does it say? That BrahMos is a nuclear missile. It's a nuclear-capable missile. Let's see one more. So this is uh, militarytoday.com. It says the BrahMos cruise missile can carry nuclear warheads. Let's see one more. Uh, this is the Times Now News. More power to the Indian Air Force as nuclear-capable BrahMos is successfully test-fired from Sukhoi 30 MKI of the Bay of Bengal. I can show you 500 more uh, examples that corroborate what I am saying. The BrahMos is a nuclear-capable cruise missile. It's a supersonic cruise missile. I don't know where people get this information from. Please learn how to search for authentic information. Some news portal somewhere says the BrahMos is not nuclear capable or maybe Wikipedia says it. I don't know who says it. Why do you believe that? Can't you look at different sources of information, more reliable sources of information? The BrahMos is a nuclear capable missile. And then they're talking about the MTCR rules. According to international law, MTCR, MR, whatever, India is a member. So India is not allowed to do this, do that. Are Baba. The Pakistanis are also bound by the MTCR. The Chinese are also bound by, bound by the MTCR. So how did Pakistan acquire ballistic missile technology via China from North Korea? What happened to the MTCR rules, missile technology control regime? Why does it only selectively apply to India? I just don't agree the this sheep, sheep-like behavior that we have to follow international law. No, we have to follow nothing. We have to do what is in our best interest. So the MTCR said this and that. See, what is the MTCR? The Missile Technology Control Regime. And according to this, this, it's a gang. And they, they, these are the countries that have, that are the powerful countries. India was not a member of the MTCR. And because of that, India was not allowed to receive missile technology from a third country, like Russia, for instance, which in which the missile would have a range of more than 300 kilometers. That's why the initial BrahMos was said to have a range of 290 kilometers. All right. Well, the thing is very simple. You change the fuel, your range will change. So if you have a missile that has a stated range of 290 kilometers, but you change the fuel in the ramjet engine or wherever else in the other engine, in the initial engine, you may have a different range, which may be less, which may be more. So the initial uh, version, the block one, I think it's called the block one Ramos was said to have a range of 290 kilometers, but there were, well, there were Rumors, you could say that uh, you could call them that this missile could go much further than that. Then India in 20 whatever, a few years ago, became a member of the MTCR regime. And then India now can uh, acquire technology or export technology to MTCR members in which the missiles have a longer range. There is no limitation to that. So newer versions of the BrahMos, I believe they have a range of 700 kilometers, 800 kilometers, 900 kilometers. Uh, we are supposedly building, uh, developing a more advanced version of the BrahMos with a range of more than 1500 kilometers, right? Uh, there is the BrahMos new generation missile, which is a lighter and shorter missile. Uh, then there is the aerial BrahMos missile, which can be launched from the Sukhoi aircraft and maybe the Rafale also. Then there is a BrahMos 2 missile that's been developed, which is not a supersonic missile. It's a hypersonic missile which will have a very long range, maybe more than 1,500 kilometers. So the uh, regular BrahMos has a, has a ramjet engine. It is a, it's a two-stage missile. The uh, first stage is, a, I think it's a solid fuel stage, 
which accelerates the missile to Mach 1, which is approximately the speed of the speed of sound. And once the missile crosses Mach 1, that's when you can ignite the ramjet because the ramjet needs supersonic speeds. So the, the that's when the ramjet engine is ignited. The first stage is jettisoned. And that's when the missile way, goes way beyond Mach 2. It reaches nearly Mach 3, which is three times the speed of sound. So that is the BrahMos, the regular BrahMos missile. BrahMos 2, which will not have a ramjet, but a scramjet, which is a supersonic combusting ramjet engine. The new BrahMos, the BrahMos 2, will have a will have a top velocity of about Mach 8, which is eight times the speed of sound. So it's, it is a hypersonic missile. So I don't know whether it's been developed, whether, it's be, whether it is still under development. We will not make these things very clear. Obviously, we should not. But the thing is this, these missiles can carry conventional warheads. They can carry rocks if you want, if you want to increase the kinetic energy of the impact. If you want to cut a ship in, in half, then you don't need to carry a warhead. You can just put uh, 200 tons of uh, 200 kilos, 300 kilos, whatever whatever the weight is of rocks or, or concrete just to increase the kinetic energy of the impact. You can do that. The Brahmos can destroy a ship without carrying a warhead. Or you can even put a nuclear warhead in the Brahmos. So it's up to you what you want to do is if you own the missile, if you have it. And we, we own the missile, India, right? So the BrahMos is 100% a nuclear-capable missile. I don't know where you get this misinformation from. It's clear that this misinformation is very widespread. Lots, I mean, dozens of people have made these comments, which is completely incorrect. Okay, next. Uh, Ojaswa says, can Pakistan re-engineer the BrahMos missile or give it to the Chinese to re-engineer on their behalf because China will want to arm Pakistan as much as possible to pressurize India, etc., all that. The BrahMos missile, okay, we are assuming the missile that entered Pakistan and crashed in Pakistan was a BrahMos. It does look like it was that. So, and there is some debris that's available. Well, what you have <laughs> is a missile that is completely destroyed. It's like we like we know, it's a supersonic missile. It travels at nearly three times the speed of sound. What is the speed of sound? 333 meters per second. Three times the speed of sound is a kilometer per second. It is literally faster than a bullet. That's how fast this enormous missile flies. When it crashes somewhere, do you think you will retrieve anything that can be salvageable or will make any sense to you from a re-engineering, reverse engineering perspective? No. All you will be able to recover after the explosion, the crash, is mangled bits and pieces of metal. You cannot reverse engineer anything from that. Not the engine. You may get some traces of fuel. You may be able to determine what fuel they are using. That's what you will be able to do. The engine will be destroyed beyond recognition. The initial engine will not even be there because that's the first stage which accelerates the missile to Mach 1 and beyond. And then you have the ramjet which takes it to Mach 3. The ramjet will be totally destroyed. Whatever electronics are within will be vaporized. So you will get nothing that you can actually use and, and make any sense of. And it's not like the missile uses any special uh, materials. It's just regular steel, I believe. It's a heavy duty missile. There is no attempt to minimize the weight of the missile, which means that you, they would use regular steel as far, as far as I know. So there is nothing that they can really re reverse engineer. And the Chinese already have a uh, a certain version 
of a Russian missile of the Onyx 800 missile, which was used as a, as a template for the for the Brahmos. So the Chinese have a version of the older missile, which is in some ways similar to the Brahmos or a previous, an older generation version of the Brahmos. So I, I don't think the Chinese would even need or want to reverse engineer it. Of course, there are certain things that they would want to learn, but they won't, they will not be able to retrieve anything of any value from the mangled wreckage of that one missile. I mean, you would not send a missile into enemy territory if, if there was something that they would be able to retrieve from it, right? And lots of people are telling, are saying in the comments that this was deliberately, this, this was definitely a malfunction. India did not send it deliberately. Arebai, grow up, please. You don't send a nuclear missile, a nuclear-capable missile, even an unarmed supersonic missile into enemy territory by mistake. There is a whole sequence of steps that needs to take place before a missile launches. And these missiles are very carefully guarded. It's not like some sweeper is allowed to go and press a button and the missile takes off. It doesn't happen like that. There's a whole sequence. There's a whole chain of command. Multiple people have to sign off on the, on the launch process. Well, that's how it goes, in case you don't know. So this, I do not see this as a as, as, a, as an accidental launch, right? We can say it's an accidental launch because that's how you should make it look. You should not, you know, you cannot tell the world we did a deliberate launch. So that's why you call it an accidental launch. I do not see it as an accidental launch. So uh, I don't think there is anything that the Brahmos, that the Pakistanis or the Chinese would be able to reverse engineer from our missile. Vishal says Russia is made up of many republics, Sakha Republic, etc., and federal subjects. Similarly, China has five autonomous regions: Guangxi, Xinjiang, Tibet, Ningxia, Inner Mongolia. Could you please tell what level of power, what level of power do these administrative divisions hold? Are they just like local governments, or do they have some control over the decision making for their region? Let's take a look at uh, Chinese administrative divisions app. Let's take a look at that and let me share that with you. Let me share that image. So I'm just doing a Google search, a simple Google search for that. And let's take a look at this, maybe this. So there are certain so-called administrative divisions of China, Xinjiang, Tibet, Qinghai, Inner Mongolia, Jilin, Heilongjiang, and so on and so forth. So some of these are so-called autonomous regions and some of these are provinces and so on. The question, and similarly, we have something similar for Russia. Every country has internal administrative divisions. You can call them whatever you want to call them. In India, we call them states and union territories. In China, they call them provinces. In Pakistan also, I believe they call them provinces. In Russia, they call them whatever else. The nomenclature doesn't matter. So the question is, how much power do these administrative divisions hold, which means that if you have a local government in, let's say, Tibet or Xinjiang or Qinghai or Sichuan or Yunnan or wherever, how much power does the local administration have? And similarly for Russia, the answer is, uh, I would say, very simple. They have very little real power. In a country like China, which is a one-party state, China is, is essentially an imperial system. They can call it whatever they want to call it. The chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, who who doubles up as the president of the country, which is Mr. Xi Jinping, 
and then you have local administrative local governors for each uh, province and and, and uh, autonomous region the power in a country which has an imperial system is always concentrated at the center the imperial throne beijing so the majority the majority 99% of the power in the country lies within the inner core of the chinese communist party the politburo or the or the four or five most powerful people and among them the first among equals is obviously the chairman xi jinping so all these autonomous regions etc they have next to no power they just simply do what they are told and similarly for russia also you have governors etc of all the various provinces oblasts and whatever they called they answer to mr putin they get their funding from the center from from the kremlin and they are completely dependent on everything on the kremlin so they have to perform they have to carry out the orders they have to carry out whatever they're told if they keep doing it they stay in power otherwise the governor is replaced and somebody else is put in place and their only job is to follow orders there is no democracy or any such thing yeah you have voting and all and so on and so forth but you know that's not really how power works anywhere in the world even in so called democratic countries even in india all right so that's how it is so these local governments have very little control over decision making they simply follow orders obviously they will be allowed to make some decisions and uh, as long as the law and order is is preserved and the kind of the overall policy is followed you can do whatever else you see fit to keep things running smoothly so that's the level of power they have rishi says you once said on the ranveer show that china's stable political system gives them an edge over india and political instability in india is stopping us from bringing out our full potential how can we achieve that kind of stability in a democracy like india answer is very simple you cannot have that sort of stability in a democratic system in a true democracy in a true democracy it is the mob that rules it is the will and and uh, the whims of the mob of the people that decide the fate of the country and as long as you have a system in which there is the cyclic uh, uh cycle of elections every 4 years or 5 years we have 5 year systems in india and uh, then you will uh, then the problem is that the leaders whoever comes to power their main focus will always be on the next elections because unless you are in power you cannot do anything for the country so even if your intentions are good even if you want to do contribute something good to the country you have to keep on making compromises to keep the people happy because you have to be reelected so it's a constant cycle in india if you look at the news media whatever your favorite channel is their favorite topic is politics 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 that's all there is india is obsessed with politics there's always some election somewhere and just imagine the amount of energy of the state machinery of the of the of the government government machinery and the amount of money that is utilized in this is in running these elections my goodness and you never know what's going to happen in an election you may have a good chief minister a good prime minister gone when the election results are out so it's a very unstable system and especially when you have a parliamentary democracy when the people cannot directly elect the the prime minister or the chief minister you can only elect your local representative and then these local representatives will get together and elect a leader among their own why do we have such a system why can't we have a direct system in which we can elect a prime minister president whoever it is and that person gets stable five year term why can't we have that we don't have that 
this is a system that is designed to be unstable and then if you have a hung parliament then you will have a coalition government which by definition is an extremely weak and unstable government so this system that we have is by design unstable it keeps on it 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 forces even good politicians even good leaders to keep on doing these populist measures keeping the people happy uh, giving them reservations giving them freebies and so on and so forth so that is what is holding the country back the chinese have an imperial system you can call it whatever you want it's an imperial system the way empires have been run for thousands of years so that's what they have they have no need to appease the public the uh, the public is expected to quietly obey what they are do- told to do that's how it works in china right so there is no need to appease the public there is no need to stand for election so the system is very stable they can have 10 year plans 20 year plans 100 year plans and they they will keep following the plan no matter what leader leader is currently at the top in the chinese communist party and they have a very harsh cutthroat system in the chinese communist party the 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 leader who can or the people who come to power are the people who have been able to defeat everybody else within the within the ranks of the chinese communist party oh, only the hardest of the lot can rise to the top so by design the system is such that you will have very strong leadership centralized leadership and stable leadership so that is what is the difference between india and china so this system which is by design unstable is what is stopping india from achieving its full potential i am not saying that india should uh, uh, should uh, take up uh, an autocratic system a dictatorial system what we can do is we can have a different form of democracy maybe a presidential form of democracy that is again democracy but at least you are guaranteed stability on a five year cycle so let's say you are electing a president who doesn't need the support of so so and so numbers of members of parliament the people elect a president directly and once a president is elected to power that person he or she has a guaranteed five year term so if you have that sort of system which is still a democratic system then you are guaranteed way more stability than we have today so there are things that certainly need to change in india so there is something we could learn from china i'm not saying we should go full autocracy and full dictatorship no we can have a better democratic system india is the birthplace of democracy look back at what worked for us in the past and we can draw inspiration for that from that in the 21st century okay um r73 selected that's a missile isn't it okay so he says i disagree with the point that two powerful countries with a long shared border will come to conflict that's a myopic one dimensional view of the world in a multidimensional world for example canada and us are two very powerful countries saudi arabia and uae are very powerful countries turkey and greece are all very powerful countries all fall in the same category but i haven't seen a single bullet fired in the last 70 200 years dear sir welcome to this universe i i assume you have come from a parallel universe in which a different different uh, system exists so maybe in a <laughs> i don't mean to be disrespectful i'm just trying to be humorous maybe in a parallel universe canada is a powerful country maybe in a power in a parallel universe saudi arabia and uae tiny microscopic uae is a powerful country 
and maybe in a parallel universe turkey and greece are powerful countries let me explain something my friends let's 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 go to the map and let me explain um so the map is the best way to look at geopolitics to understand geopolitics so you are saying that canada is a powerful country uh, let me share a piece of news that came in just a couple of days ago uh this powerful country so this is news look here this is uh what this this lady is canada's defense minister her name is anita anand she's of indian origin so so trudeau's defense minister announced to canadians that canada has exhausted inventory from the canadian armed forces and they are there are capacity sure issues after sending all of our equipment to ukraine's president which means to translate that it means that canada has run out of arms and ammunition whatever little they had they have given to ukraine is that your definition of a powerful country look at north america there is only one powerful country in the, in north america which is the united states the other two countries in north america canada and mexico are vassal states of the united states all the countries in south america are also under the same situation there is only one power in the americas one undisputed power that does not tolerate any other power that is the united states canada is not a powerful country canada is a colony of the us please understand that canada is by no definition a powerful country let's say saudi arabia and uae Saudi Arabia is a US colony. Saudi Arabia is a US vassal state. So is the UAE. In by what definition are they a powerful are these powerful countries? I don't understand that. Maybe you have not been maybe you are new to this channel so you may not have been listening to what I've been saying. Let's talk about Turkey and Greece. Turkey is a member of nato which makes it a us vassal state turkey has us nuclear weapons on its soil when you have a superpowers military equipment on your soil on a permanent basis it means you are a vassal state of that country so how does it make turkey a powerful nation yeah sure they have a powerful military and they do it indulge in various military adventures from time to time they can do it only with the explicit approval of the united states and when you say that they have not fired a single bullet in the last 70 to 100 years are you not aware of the situation in cyprus in 1974 turkey invaded cyprus and took over the northern one third plus of the country cyprus used to belong to greece so turkey and greece went to war greece is a completely powerless country greece is not even a small power and please understand this also there is only one power in europe it is not the european union it is not nato it is not germany which is the most uh, advanced country it's not france the only genuine power in europe is the united states and the united states has ensured that europe remains peaceful more or less and stable after 1945 until now right of course they you had the yugoslav civil war and th- some things here and there you had uh, a civil war in spain and you had various things you had the troubles in ireland but those were low scale small scale conflicts so the only real power in europe is the us 
Turkey is not a powerful country. Greece is not a powerful country. All the examples you've given are not of powerful countries. It may look like they are, but they are not. Welcome to the real world, sir. So that is what I can offer you. And I hope you will <laughs> try and view the world through what power really is. What is power? Most people don't understand what power is. Power is, is something that is, uh, well, hard to see if you don't know where to look. Okay, let's go to the next country. Uh, next uh, question. Dhruv says, in your podcast, you always say India needs a strong leader for at least 50 to, 50 to 20 years. And I always feel that somewhere this is against the principles of democracy. Sometimes a leader chosen by the masses could not be a strong leader, but a person who, who can influence people easily. So do you believe democracy is the best practice for a country like India with so much diversity? And is there any other kind of system that could work better in the case of India, according to you? Listen, India is the birthplace of democracy. We have had democracy in India for thousands of years. Not your Western-style democracy, which is a fake democracy. We had democracy for thousands of years. Have you heard of the Mahajanapadas? These were democratic republics. You had elected kings. But you had kings. Yes, so it's a hybrid system. It's an Indian system. It's the way it works in India. The principles of democracy, I have no interest in whatever principles people talk about of democracy. What is more important? The long-term national interest, the long-term security, stability, and prosperity of the country, or some vague principles of democracy? Who cares? It doesn't matter what system you use. It doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice. What is important is the long-term security, prosperity, and progress, stability of the country. That is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter whether you have a dictator in power, whether you have a democratically elected president, prime minister, whatever in power, or if you have, if you have a king or an emperor in power. What The only thing that matters is the long-term national interest, the long-term security, stability, and prosperity of the country and its people. That's the only thing that matters. I don't care about any principles of democracy or dictatorship or imperial system or anything. It doesn't matter what system is there. The people must prosper. The country must prosper. The country must remain safe and secure and stable over a long period of time. Centuries I'm talking about. That's what matters. Who cares what system is there? Right? So I think the current form of the current system that we have in India is, is terribly unsuited for the country. We need to have, we need to go back to our own past. I'm not saying we need to have an emperor or a king. I'm not saying we need to have a dictator. I'm saying that we need to have our own, we need to revive our own form of democracy. That's what we need to do. And to ensure that there is security, stability and prosperity in the long run over a time span of decades and century, centuries. Right. So I, so you can have that with, within a democratic system for sure. I have always said that I, I believe in democracy. I believe that the people are the ultimate uh, arbiters of their own fate. But they so so we need to have the right system. That's what I'm saying. The it doesn't matter which system it is there. What could work better for India? Any system that gives us stability and these and these things, long-term national interest. Any system like that is fine for me. I don't care. Uh, what do you think was the main cause of the American invasion in Vietnam? Apart from their baseless reasons reasons of demilitarizing the area, 
was it the capturing a resourceful area or some geopolitical reasons as china wasn't a threat for them in that period of time okay so the vietnam war is a very drawn out protracted thing you can have a six month course on what happened in vietnam right uh so i'm going to have to answer this in 5 minutes so i'll i'm going to make it short so uh before the second world war when did the second world war begin 1939 i believe and it went on until 1945 so before the second world war vietnam was a colony of france where is vietnam you know where india is yes go eastwards 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 and you come to southeast asia and here is vietnam it's a strange shaped country a long country from here north vietnam hanoi all the way down south to saigon or ho chi minh city right it's kind of like chile that sort of geography so before the second world war vietnam was a french colony even today you will find that french culture and french language has a certain status high status in vietnam even today uh so vietnam was a french colony in the second world war in that pre- period it was occupied by the japanese imperial forces japan rampaged across all of asia it came to the doorstep of india it entered manipur as well we had the battle of imphal and battle of uh, kohima and so on uh, in which the ina was also involved which is a different story so the Jap- the the vietnamese were first under the french then they were occupied by japan after the second world war after the de- defeat of japan uh during the second world war during the invasion during the occupation by japan the viet min was a resistance uh, force it was a vietnamese communist resistance force and their leader was ho chi min so after the japanese were defeated the uh, the viet min were able to capture power in northern vietnam and the french were able to retain power in southern vietnam right so the country was basically uh, divided into two and then there was some kind of an agreement in geneva i believe in the mid 50s early 50s or somewhere i don't remember the dates look it up look it up please uh, so there was this uh, agreement in geneva which was obviously broken by the europeans it's always this colonial attitude so vietnam was officially divided into north vietnam and south vietnam and they said there would be elections and then the country would be reunified the elections never happened so north vietnam was run by ho chi minh by the communists and south vietnam had a so called democracy in south vietnam we had there was this uh, leader this uh, ruler i forget his name but he was unpopular deeply unpopular he was very much mentally colonized he oppressed the buddhists who the buddhism is buddhism and hinduism were historically the main religions in vietnam now it's mostly buddhism so uh this guy who i forget his name but he was oppressing the buddhists he was promoting christianity there was this very sad unfamous tragic incident of a buddhist monk who set himself on fire it was captured by on on camera the, the very iconic images so he did that the self immolation in protest against the persecution of the native religion and culture of vietnam and the imposition of christianity so the guy who was ruling south vietnam was very deeply unpopular then there was a coup he was expelled and somebody else was put in place but the but the government remained unpopular and the north vietnamese wanted to re, to to reunify the country and their leader was ho chi minh 
and then so there was this state of civil war which which kind of began and the americans were very wary of this so the americans had seen what happened in europe the ussr uh, became a major power and then many of these eastern european countries became communist countries so they saw that communism was liable to spread like this they called it the domino effect you also had the same thing in korea korea also was divided into two north korea and south korea and north korea was under chinese influence and it was a communist regime it was a dictatorial regime so the same situation was there in korea as well so the americans got involved they sent their so called uh, political advisors or military advisors or what it was whatever it was called thousands of them maybe more than 10000 of them and then they decided to get involved militarily to defeat the communists right so the main cause of the us invasion in vietnam well they said it is to defeat communism because communism is liable to spread it has this domino effect and they did not want the whole world to become communist because they believed in democracy and western liberal values and human rights etc right so then they they did this false flag incident in the gulf of tonkin the so called gulf of tonkin incident in which a us naval ship was attacked apparently by north vietnamese uh, Uh, boats or missile boats or whatever it was torpedo boats and then they took that as the pretext for starting the war they said they the vietnamese have attacked us attacked us and this gives us a just cause to go to war and that's how the whole business of the vietnam war began the vietnamese don't call it the vietnam war they call it the american war but we because we are all part of the western world we are part of the english speaking world we are mentally colonized so that's that's why we in india call it the vietnam war it's actually the american war the americans initiated the war and they lost they lost terribly and the north vietnam is won and they were able to reunify the country and then vietnam became a communist country of sorts today also it is well officially a communist country but they have uh, they have been able to uh, develop the economy quite well and they are doing reasonably well they are doing they are, they are reasonably reasonably mildly populous country the living standards are higher today in vietnam than in india today right so it's doing well so that is the story of the vietnam war in very brief i have left out lots of stuff but because of the format of this show next akash says i wonder if the relevance of the question can be appreciated by my, by my fellow subscribers but seeing what's happening in the west i believe we are going to face this soon or might already be in it, be in it from the big banner movies to tv series from marvel to dc comics and even to children's cartoons de- depicting men as toxic ruling over women ruthlessly since ancient times the idea of women being subjected to men's wishes is being propagated heavily and quite directly nowadays not only this but also the futility of religious values one's own culture importance of family taking the responsibilities are being looked down upon i've spoken to lots of young people from the west and they all seem to be really comf- comfortable in smoking drinking abusing their parents and elders glorifying depression and suicides multiple partners expressing their own, doubting their own sexuality from the age of 13 which is hilarious and so on how do these uh, narratives give power to the left ideology uh of group identity politics freedom of expression and give a reason for society's downfall so the left has a very simple uh strategy the strategy is very simple at the core break down the family system because when you have a family system 
you have people who can give you support mental support who can take care of you in your bad times and who can uh, influence you in a variety of ways and whose influence is stronger than the influence of the media and advertisement advertising and uh, your professors and all that if you have a fr- strong family system if you have a strong culture if you have strong attachment to your culture to your traditional values to your civilization to your family to your extended family then you have a very stable support system you will not feel lost and you will not be susceptible susceptible to being influenced strongly and swayed this way and that way by the media by advertising and so on so to make people vulnerable and susceptible to any messaging you want to give them you have to first make them rootless so go after traditional values go after the family system and how do you go after the family system say that it's patriarchal it is oppressive it is, men have been oppressing women for tens of thousands of years so the family system is patriarchal destroy the family let's uh, let's not have family let's have single parent families where only the mother is raising a child or only a father is raising a child let's have broken families let's have let's get divorced all the time in the west that's what's happening and uh, attack traditional values so in the west the traditional values have been christian values which we know what the story is so even that gave people a, a framework a cultural framework that they could rely upon for their moral framework for their for their for their morality and ethics so now that is gone right so men are depicted as toxic fathers are evil men are bad uh, then uh, question your sexuality become i mean i'm not saying lgbtq doesn't exist or whatever we have, we know in india that we have had that for transsexuals etc for thousands of years and they were never persecuted they were only persecuted in the west but now people are encouraged to uh, go in that direction so that there will be no families so what the main strategy is is to destroy the family system destroy all traditional values make people completely rootless make the individual the unit of society not the family the unit of society in indo european society in all traditional societies the family is the unit of society not the individual historically it has always been the family and in a place like india it's always been extended families not nuclear families so now in india we are already seeing the destruction of the extended family and the rise of the nuclear family husband and wife father and mother and one or two children that's what we are seeing in the west it's not even the nuclear family anymore it's single parent families and lots of uh, rootless individuals who don't even know how many family members they may or may not have so they are atomizing society they want society to become individualistic and that's all, that's always been part of the anglo-saxon culture i mean if you see the way the english speaking world treats its elders it is deplorable there is no respect for elders in europe in the non-english speaking world there is a much higher sense of respect to elderly people in asia in india china japan etc it's a whole different level of respect for elderly people for elder people if someone is even 5 years older than you you treat them with deference courtesy and respect that is traditional values in asia in in the east you don't see that in the english speaking world so their value system has already been has always been this way and now they are exporting it worldwide you can see that in their culture in their movies and so on so the 
overall aim is to atomize society destroy all traditional values destroy the family make every individual alone rootless and vulnerable so if you are completely alone if you are completely rootless if you have no support system you are very you can be very easily influenced by your professors by the mass media by the news media whatever they tell you you'll believe and then they make you dependent on drugs on pharmaceuticals and uh, if you look at the us everybody takes prescription medicines no matter how healthy they may be everybody pops pills every day like multiple times a day in india no one does that but they would like that to happen in india as well and then you have the opioid crisis and all so you consume this you consume that everything is regulated by chemicals and then you have then the glorify depression everything is about mental mental illness mental illness i have never seen mental illness i'm not saying it doesn't exist but the prevalence of mental illness is extremely low in a country like india it's extremely high in a country like the us depression mental illness suicides even kids are affected by, by this so it's a terrible terrible society they are constructing and it is very dangerous for the world i spoke about this horrific movie i watched batman my goodness they glorify all that it is so dark and depressing and some people are saying abhijit you are wrong it has a positive meaning are baba what are you talking about so i totally disagree with this nonsense that, that uh, this batman movie had some positive messaging it was totally negative totally nihilistic i'm not some people are even saying nihilism is good are bhai what world are you living in so anyway that's what it is so the objective is to atomize and destroy society to make each individual rootless uh, directionless supportless and vulnerable so that is actually what the objective is and what it serves is it serves the big industries so if a, if a person is so vulnerable and susceptible to all kinds of messaging you can make them buy whatever they want to make them buy so it what it's what it serves is it serves capitalism capitalism is about, is about using each, indi- each each individual of the society as a consumer now if you have a good stable system you will not want to consume that much but if you are completely hopeless rootless and alone then you will feel that consumption is going to make me happy buy this buy that buy the newest phone every year buy a phone every year then throw the old phone buy a new device every year buy the latest fashion look at me do i wear latest fashion i don't but yeah buy expensive clothes buy expensive sneakers buy expensive watches buy expensive devices and the, your device of last year is old now get a new one so it's if you are all alone if you have nobody to give you good advice you're going to keep consuming 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 and they can keep making money off you so this so called left ideology leftist ideology it actually serves consumerism it serves capitalism capitalism is all about pursuing endless profits quarter upon quarter profits how do you make this profits how do you do this profits by exploiting the planet you cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet why is the planet being destroyed because of this infinite pursuit of capitalist growth it is capitalism that is destroying the planet i am not saying saying that we need to go to marxism or communism that is also equally bad but it is this capitalist ideology that has co-opted the so called leftist movement and that's why we are seeing all this in the united states and in the western world so uh, that is something india needs to be very careful about
Okay, so um, Ganpath says you mentioned earlier that when India reaches the 10 trillion dollar mark, then India can have a big impact in geopolitics. Uh, my question is, if we consider the current rate of growth and the political situation, then will when will India become a 10 trillion dollar economy? Is the government really do, looking forward to that? And uh, are we on the right path? And so on. Look, it's a simple question of some mathematical calculations. Let me show you. Let me share something that I looked into. Where is it? One second. Let's look at GDP project projections based on simple calculations. It's an Excel sheet. Let's make it larger. Um, 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 um. So we have th this uh, Excel sheet here. So we are at year zero. Our economy is $3 trillion. And let's say we are growing at only 5% per year then it will take us, even after 20 years, our economy will have reached $7.96 trillion at the rate of 5% growth per year. So it is too less for us. Okay, If we grow at 7% per year, starting at $3 trillion, then it will take us 18 years to reach the $10 trillion mark. If we grow at 8% per year, then starting from $3 trillion today, it will take us 16 years to reach the $10 trillion mark. If we are growing at 10% per year, it will take us 13 years. If we grow at 12% per year, it will take us 11 years to reach the $10 trillion mark. So what we are looking at is about is a journey of about 20 years, two decades. Within two decades, if we do things right, we will reach the $10 trillion mark. We need to grow at minimum 7% per year, ideally 10% or more. Is the government doing it? They are doing their best for sure. They're doing whatever they can. They have done lots of things that is going to supercharge the Indian economy. We now have the GST. Earlier, we had Octroy, which was stifling the Indian economy. It, it was ensuring that India's economy can never grow. So Octroy is gone. We have a GST. We have a GST which is in, in force today, which has completely opened up the economy. Now every state can trade with each other and we can send goods anytime we want, anywhere we want. There are no delays. There are no bottlenecks. So the economy is working much, much better now. Then we have UPI, which has totally liberated the people, which has made transactions very quick. It has unified the economy into a big big unified whole and there are so many more things that we are doing we are seeing that india has become the number one uh, country for unicorns every year india has the most number of unicorns that are coming up every year and so on and so forth so india is on the right path lot a lot more reforms need to be implemented it's not easy it's an enormous country so it's not easy but india is on the right path i think that within 20 years we should be we should have definitely crossed the 10 trillion dollar mark the the trick the real trick is to ensure that there is peace and stability in India for these next two decades. Because you can only have high growth and stable growth when you are in peace, when your country is peaceful. If you are fighting wars here and there, your economy will definitely suffer. So the trick for India is to ensure that we remain at peace with our neighbors for the next 20 years. If we can do that, we are guaranteed, I guarantee that we will cross 10 trillion, trillion dollar marks within the next two decades. Two decades is not a long period of time, right? So the real trick is not about growing the economy and doing this thing or that thing, but about 
ensuring that India remains peaceful. And you can only have peace through strength. That's what it is. Gihan says, should a country adopt harsh punishments for serious criminals like the Saudi Arabia and UAE have adopted or not? Well, it depends. It depends on your culture and your society. I'm not justifying harsh punishments and I'm not passing any kind of judgment on so-and-so culture, on X culture or Y culture or Z culture. Some cultures are inherently peaceful. India's indigenous culture and civilization is inherently peaceful. People don't have criminal tendencies. On average, you have far fewer criminals in India than compared to certain other cultures. That has been a historical trend. When the Chinese travelers came to India during the Gupta Empire, they remarked upon how lax the the system of punishments was. The death penalty was unheard of. And the policing was never brutal and so on. And yet India was peaceful. It's because of the kind of culture we had. During the Mauryan times, when there was this time of uh, time of strife, when you had invasions coming in from the West and so on, the system was a little more harsher. During the Gupta period, we had much more stability and peace. So the system was much more gentle. In Saudi Arabia, there is a certain kind of culture. And for that, they need to impose harsh punishments. A similar thing was seen in Iraq during the time of Saddam Hussein. The country remained very peaceful, very stable, but you had a harsh regime that was implemented to enforce that. Look at the West. Look at the US. Look at their criminal justice system. It is brutal. It is brutal. The American criminal justice system is among the harshest in the world. They give children life sentences to spend the whole of their life, the entirety of the rest of their life inside a box, inside a concrete box. That's the kind of harsh, brutal system the Americans have. They have death penalty in a variety of ways. The Chinese have a very brutal system. So it depends on the character of your country, the kind of cultural and civilizational ethos you have. If you are inherently peaceful, you will not need such harsh punishments. India historically has culturally and traditionally and civilizationally been a very civilized, peaceful, orderly country. The criminality, incidence of criminality per capita is among the lowest in the world, even today, even today, after the barbaric history of the past 1000 years. So it depends. When you have a society that is that is more violent, you will need harsher punishments. When you have a society that is inherently peaceful, then you can have lax punishments and you will still have law and order. When you have a mixed society with one section which is like this, one section like that, you have to apply these things judiciously. So that's just that's how it is done in general. And so that's that's the general answer to your question. Rajorshi says, uh, can you please explain the importance of India's soon to be commissioned INS Vikrant aircraft carrier against ag- aggressors and how important aircraft carriers are in a war? Why do so few countries possess them? Well, very few p- countries possess aircraft carriers because they are incredibly expensive pieces of hardware. Uh, an aircraft carrier like the INS Vikrant would cost approximately $3 billion on the lower scale or 5 to $6 billion on the higher scale. Right. The American aircraft carriers all cost individually more than $10 billion each. That's an incredibly high amount of money. So most countries can't afford to have that. Secondly, when you spend so much money on a single ship, 
you are concentrating a lot of your lethality of your navy's lethality and investment in one single ship right so if you have an aircraft carrier which can let's say the indian aircraft carriers can carry about 30 35 maybe 40 fighter planes and it is a significant investment you've done so it is a huge very lucrative target for the enemies and uh, so that's why aircraft carriers very few countries want to have them because you can for the price of let's say one aircraft carrier which is let's say let's say on average 5 billion dollars you could have 10 10 uh, or or 15 destroyers warships a destroyer a warship on average a medium sized one would cost between 200 to 300 million dollars so for the price tag of 5 billion dollars you could have 25 such warships which can be used in a variety of ways and you can disperse them throughout your territory instead of having just one ship in one place so for the same money you can get much more lethality and much more distributed lethality similarly if you have missile boats which typically cost 30 to 50 million dollars you can have much more many more missile boats instead of one aircraft carrier so you can distribute your lethality much more if you have a submarine that costs let's say on on the lower scale 100 million dollars you could acquire 50 submarines invisible deadly submarines for the price of a single aircraft carrier so the cost benefit analysis is not quite good when it comes to aircraft carriers aircraft carriers are very nice to see they are very prestigious ships if you have an aircraft carrier in your in your navy it gives you a great amount of prestige but the aircraft carrier to to tell you the truth is obsolete i don't understand india's obsession in the in the indian navy's obsession with aircraft carriers when you have a war with a, a well armed adversary you actually have to hide your aircraft carrier why is it that in 1971 india had to hide the aircraft carrier in visakhapatnam instead of instead of uh, I don't know if it was 71 or 65 one of these two wars india had to essentially hide their craft carrier because it was vulnerable to submarines and what not so it is very difficult to defend a ship like that you need a whole ring of other ships around it which will provide the defense and uh, so that costs additional money so let's say the us when it wants to defend an aircraft carrier it has about 10 ships around it which includes destroyers which includes submarines as well right so it is very hard to defend an aircraft carrier and it's a simple mathematical thing you can overwhelm any defense when you have more missiles than the defense can can cater for so uh, so if you see my uh, my discussion with dr edward luthwak on on this channel he tells very clearly he's an, he's one of the greatest geopolitical analysts in the world today a great guy so he said very clearly that the aircraft carrier was the capital ship of every navy every navy every navy has a capital ship a great ship the greatest of all ships so it used to be the capital ship in 1945 in the second world war in the 21st century the real capital ship of of a navy is the submarine submarines are invisible and they are deadly they are very hard to detect they can do far more damage with torpedoes with missiles with cruise missiles with ballistic missiles etc then any aircraft carrier can do so the real capital ship that india needs to invest in is the submarine 
I just don't understand why we are still in the 20th century mindset. And I know I'm. this is not going to be popular. Lots of people are going to disagree with me. Well, feel free, free to disagree. This is how I see it. It is all based on the logic of strategy and on the patterns that we are seeing that we have witnessed in naval warfare over centuries. There is always a certain ship in a certain era that is the capital ship. Right now, it is the submarine. The aircraft carrier is a big, huge target, slow-moving target, very hard to defend. The submarine is the invisible pred- predator that that slink around, slinks around under unseen, undetected. That is the deadliest ship that India needs to uh, invest in. So we are certainly investing in a few submarines. We should have many more than what we have today. So I would say that please stop building more aircraft carriers. Use the money to acquire other ships, especially submarines. We need to distribute our lethality instead of concentrating our lethality. Right? So I will go into the the concept of distributed lethality in one of the future episodes because it needs to be explained properly. But the importance of aircraft carriers is ah, it's it's, uh, these are not very important anymore. They actually have to be hidden. In, in, a, in a real conflict. Aircraft carriers can be used to intimidate small opponents. Like that's what the US does. It is to project power and show that we are the biggest, the biggest fish in the sea. But when there is a real conflict between two equal powers, the aircraft carriers are, are going to be the first casualties of war. So I think India should stop investing in this incredibly expensive kind of ship and use the money to acquire more and more submarines, deadly submarines. Animish says, what are your thoughts on claims of Russian military weapons and equipments being being provided to India as being junk? Heavy maintenance, corrupt lobby bidding for contracts. Is Israel a better and more reliable defense weapons ally than Russia? And so on and so forth. Uh, I would totally disagree about this claim that several people make, several reputed defense analysts make about Russian equipments and weapons being junk. Let's take the MiG-21. Yeah, we, we call it the flying coffin today. Do you know that this, this aircraft first came out in the 1950s? And India acquired these weapons decades ago, these, fly, these fighter planes, MiG-21s, and they are still flying. You know why the MiG-21s crash these days? Because they are decades old. There is something called metal fatigue. But just imagine, for so many decades, this plane kept flying reliably. Even today, if you can make it fly properly, it is still a deadly fighter plane. Even today, it can still take out a F-16 plane. So that is not junk. That is the very opposite of junk. Look at the Russian submarines that we use, the Chakra submarine. Right? Brilliant, brilliant, very hardy, very reliable weapon systems. Excellent weapon systems. We are using a Russian aircraft carrier, which works very well. We have so much Russian hardware, various anti-aircraft systems, the uh, S-400, for example. Is it junk? No. The Americans fear the S-400. Look at the the Foxbat fighter plane, F-20, uh, sorry, MiG-25, MiG was it? I think that's the one it was, yeah. So we had those fighter planes. Those were undetectable. No, they were. they could be detected, but they could not, not be shot down. They were just too fast and they just flew too high. So Russian equipment is never the most advanced equipment, but actually it is the most reliable equipment. If you can get the spares and if you do your maintenance properly, it's really reliable. 
and then you have these various heavy duty aircraft uh, sorry helicopters that they make again those are really really good helicopters they can take a lot of battering in warfare you can shoot the helicopter with machine guns ak47s you can even fire rpgs at, at these helicopters rocket propelled grenades and they will keep flying they are built like tanks sukhois so you can take an engine out of a sukhoi destroy an engine it will still fly back to its base so i would say that military equipment from russia is excellent it is never the most advanced equipment but it is really reliable these weapons these weapon systems are usually built like tanks helicopters planes etc the sukhoi uh, sorry the the foxbat fighter plane was built from steel it was incredibly heavy it could take any kind of uh, it could take a lot of uh, damage and still come back home so that's what i would say about it israel is certainly a good partner israel is has a very good weapons industry very advanced weapons industry and we are partnering with israel when it comes to uh, to uavs unarmed unmanned aerial vehicles the heron drones we are also developing the barak 8 missile defense system with israel and various other things that may not be that well known so israel is certainly a good partner we can certainly go ahead and deepen our cooperation and collaboration with israel but russia is always going to be a reliable partner it's it's had a very long history of being a reliable partner for us and a reliable supplier supplier of high quality defense defense equipment so i would say that it's 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 still good okay uh dv says uh, you said power trumps wealth so how do you convince people to help you for a greater cause like chingiz khan or chatrapati shivaji maharaj even if the money isn't there good question very interesting question so when you look at the life and career of chingiz khan or chatrapati shivaji maharaj you can see that the initial phase of their life was was characterized by great suffering great hardship and fighting as the underdog against the greatest of odds chingiz khan lost his father at a very young age he was enslaved by his enemies he lost everything he had all the money everything and he was reduced to the very bottom of the hierarchy of society as a child as a boy as a young boy and he fought he clawed his way up from there he realized that money is not important it is power that is important and he and he spent the first 30 40 years of his life just climbing up to the to the higher positions of society he became a small chieftain of a small uh, tribe of people then he conquered another tribe he defeated another tribe and over the decades he eventually step by step defeated and absorbed all of the various tribes of mongolia and he created a unified mongolian nation he was able to do that only in his mid 40s he was able to achieve that objective of unifying mongolia only when he was in his mid 40s and that's when he got the title of chingiz khan the great ruler or the oceanic ruler so how did this guy who had no money and no support convince people to support him similarly chatrapati shivaji maharaj he had to fight a guerrilla war for decades against the bahmanis against the moguls he had to play one side against the other he had to give up many forts they need to reconquer these forts they considered they they these moguls these invaders the turks they characterized chatrapati shivaji maharaj as just some some jungle brigand right that sort of thing that's how they tried to disparage him 
and uh, play down his greatness but eventually he was able to create what became the genesis of the greatest empire in india in the past 1000 years the great maratha empire so how did this guy with no money no support do this the story of chingiz khan and chhatrapati shivaji maharaj has a great amount of parallels so how does somebody with no money succeed in getting support from people for a big cause it's very simple nothing succeeds like success you have to first show that you are capable of succeeding you have to first show that i am able to bring together 10 people and forge them into a fighting force and succeed at a certain small scale you do that 10 more people will join you because you have shown demonstrated that you have a leadership quality and you are fighting for a good cause so now you have 20 men instead of 10 men and you achieve something bigger then 100 people will join you and if you keep on succeeding if you keep on being a great leader and if you keep on fighting for the right cause for a just cause for the people then the people will slowly begin to notice you and they will support you and you will gain more support and with the support of lots of people you will also get financial support which will be useful in acquiring procuring buying weapons ammunition and all that and that's how slowly slowly the snowball effect happens the domino effect happens and if you are a really strong powerful leader if you have that thing inbuilt in you then slowly from zero from literally zero over 2 3 decades you can build a genuine continent sized movement you can do it very few people have the ability to do that do that not everybody can be chhatrapati shivaji maharaj or chingiz khan but that's how it's done so you can convince people to help you if you can demonstrate that you are that you can succeed nothing succeeds like success people will follow you only after you show some success that's how it works so that is the secret a uh, general says how do we know that pakistan uh, we know that pakistan is a nuclear powered state how will india engineer its fragmentation without pakistan nuking india good question do you guys girls remember the ussr it used to be a superpower in the 20th century the ussr was it not a nuclear powered state it had more nuclear weapons than the than the united states was the united states not able to engineer the fragmentation of the ussr without having a single launch of a nuclear missile they were able to engineer it without firing a single shot that's how you engineer the breakup and fragmentation of a nuclear powered state that's how it's done um animish says most of the business books authors whom i adore and admire are posting on social media with severe ukraine pro ukraine bias and support this makes me support uh, the question their ideology and authenticity now is this just to gain popularity or their whole identity is it flawed using their ideas has given me success in my career and yet i am here in a dilemma would you recommend anything there <laughs> very good question i have a book here this one here This is the Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding by Arnold Schwarzenegger. I am a big fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think he's a very in- inspirational person. There's a there's a great deal that you, any anybody can learn from the life and career 
of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He is somebody I have admired for years. I had enjoyed watching his movies, and then I admired his career as a bodybuilder and the way he succeeded from no, from from essentially from scratch, from zero. I admire Arnold Schwarzenegger for those traits. I don't admire his politics. I don't support his politics. And very recently, like in the last forty-eight hours, he put out this video on social media supporting Ukraine, and uh, it's an anti-Russia video and telling Russia to give up its terrible war and all that. Right. So I don't agree with what he says, but it doesn't make me dislike him. Dislike him now or hate him? I still admire him. I simply disagree with his political inclinations and his worldview about whatever is happening in in Europe in in Ukraine. Now we have to understand that he is a U.S. citizen now, and there is a certain mood, a certain atmosphere that prevails in the U.S. and if you express a certain kind of opinion that is co- contrary to the prevailing mood then you will be cancelled and people will stop people people will demonize you people will start hating you people may i don't know so there will be serious consequences so that's why he does it or maybe he truly believe, believes in it either way it doesn't diminish my admiration for arnold schwarzenegger for what he has achieved in his life as an individual right uh There is another person I admire a lot, Doctor Edward Luthwak. I he was kind enough to come on a podcast and have a seventy-plus minute interaction discussion with me about India and China. Very intelligent person, great, great guy. Who he has done so much in his life. I really admire his writings as a historian, as a strategist. He is the grandfather of geostrategy, the, the godfather or the grandmaster of geostrategy, right? he was he, he was born in romania he is now a us citizen and if you look at uh, his uh, perspective on the on the ukraine war it is once again very much anti russia very much pro us and all that because he is a us citizen it is his duty to support his country and all that it doesn't make me it doesn't diminish my admiration for dr edward luthwak any any at all right so the thing i'm trying to say is this there must be many business books authors etc whom you admire and you admire them for the ideas they have given you the principles they have given you in those business books that you have been able to apply in your career and maybe it has contributed to some extent to the growth of your career it has given you success in in your career so that is something you need to keep uh, that is something admirable but just because those people have now expressed certain opinions doesn't mean you should stop admiring their business knowledge and whatever they whatever work they've done you can disagree with their political opinions with their geopolitical opinions you can disagree with them it doesn't mean that they are no longer worthy of admiration for the work they have done in business and for the ideas they've given you so i would say that you should take good ideas from wherever they come If you get some good ideas from the Chinese Communist Party, take them. If you get some good ideas from Pakistan, take them. If you get a few good ideas from the US, take them. Use them, implement them, apply them. Take good ideas, take wisdom, take knowledge from wherever it comes. And you can even admire and respect your enemies. It doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean that you should have a soft spot for them. But you should certainly use whatever knowledge and whatever of value they can contribute to you so that's what i would say 
people have compulsions. You live in a certain country, you have to say certain things. If you live in the West right now, you have to put a Ukraine flag on your Twitter account, Facebook account. You have to say pro-Ukraine things and anti-Russia things. Otherwise, you're going to get cancelled. It's a very vicious culture they have in the West. They cancel people. Look at what they did to J.K. Rowling, the writer of the Harry Potter books. They have cancelled her because she said that women and men are different. There is a biological, gender is a biological thing. It's not a social construct. That's all she said and they cancelled her for that. And the, the actors and actresses who who played uh, who po- played the characters of her of her th- that she created, they no longer talk to her apparently, and they don't even invite her for the reunion of the movies and all that. So that's the kind of vicious culture they have in the West. So people, no matter what their true feelings are, they have to make certain public signaling, and maybe they truly believe it. It doesn't mean that you should not admire their work anymore. You should still consume their content or whatever is of value and you should still utilize that in your career. Okay, Siddhan Singh Chauhan says, there is talk in the air about the Chinese foreign minister's visit to India, uh, which is put for, which is the Chinese people, which the Chinese side has proposed. It's a meeting to mend the relationship between the two countries. Give your insights on this meeting from various perspectives and so on, right? Okay, so I also heard about this that uh, Mr. Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, uh, wishes to visit India. They have proposed this, and maybe the visit will happen maybe this 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 month. It's uh, we are right now in March 2022, so most likely it looks like Mr. Wang Yi will visit India on his initiative in March 22 or maybe in early April, early next month. And I don't know what the objective of the meeting is, maybe to mend the relationship. There is going to be a BRICS uh, summit in Beijing later this year. So maybe he will also come and extend the invitation to India's Prime Minister for that thing. Uh, so that's uh, something that's that could be on the agenda. Now, if they want to mend the relationship between the two countries, we know the two countries, India and China, don't have a very good relationship. We have a bad history going back from the 1950s onwards. Before the Chinese Communist Party came to power, India and China had brilliant relations, excellent relations. China called India Tianzhu, the center of heaven. Right? So India was the western heaven from the Chinese perspective. It's only after the Chinese annexation of Tibet in the 1950s that India and Chinese controlled territory had a common border. And that's where all all the problems started. And then you had the 1962 invasion of India by the Chinese. They captured parts of our territory, which they still control. And then there was the 1967 war that no one knows about, in which India defeated China. Then you had the incidents in the 1980s, late 1980s, again in which India defeated China. And now the Chinese are claiming Arunachal Pradesh and so on and so forth. So there is this open border, undemarcated border. And the border is undemarcated, not because India wants it to be undemarcated, but because the Chinese are showing an extreme reluctance to demarcate the border. Because they want to keep pressurizing India and keep India on the back foot because there is an open border so they can keep encroaching on Indian territory. So, I agree with with the Chinese contention that the relationship between the two countries is not good. Now, the question is very simple. Why is this relationship not good? Who is the root cause of the bad relationship? Is it India, 
that has caused the bad relationship or is it china that has caused the bad relationship has india invaded ever any chinese controlled territory or is it the chinese who have repeatedly invaded indian territory it is clear that the real problem of this bad relationship is chinese actions chinese aggression and chinese malafide intentions and it is the chinese who are not amenable to demarcating the border they are the ones who are showing the extreme reluctance so if the chinese side wants to mend the relationship between china and india i think it's very clear what they have to do they have to take the initiative they have to show the goodwill the only obstacle the only impediment in achieving a better relationship is the undemarcated border once the border issue is settled the entire problem will go away so it is for the chinese to show a willingness to settle this issue the border issue in let's say the next 2 years let's say 1 year 2 years let's say 5 years take your time but there is no progress and they are the ones who are blocking the progress so if the chinese want to mend the relationship they should stop le- lecturing india that india should stop banning chinese apps and india should open up uh, chinese fdi and india should allow the chinese to invest in so and so sector no please stop lecturing india if you want to mend the bad relationship go to the root cause of the bad relationship which is created by you china needs to address that once they address this the relationship will improve automatically so that is what i have to say to this chinese claim that they want to mend the relationship go ahead mend it it's it is up to you to do that you are the ones who are preventing the relationship from from improving okay a couple of questions about saurashtra i live in saurashtra gujarat i am a kathi kshatriya it is said that the kathis lived in satyasindhu or present day punjab area of the time at the time of alexander's invasion and they also took part in the war against alexander and druvik says saraostus sairastrin surastrini surashtra sorat etc these are some names by which modern saurashtra region was referred to in history was it saraostus earlier than related to saurashtra uh what is the history what is the founding story of today's kathiawar region okay let's look at the map where is saurashtra kathiawar saurashtra is the jaw of gujarat india if if so india has a face the face is gujarat right it looks like a human face and the jaw this peninsula is the saurashtra peninsula it is also known as the kathiawar peninsula so it is named after the kathi people kathiawar so uh, what is the so it is said that these people lived in satya sindhu present day punjab well i have no idea about that whether they the kathi people migrated from from satya sindhu or punjab or whatever what we know is that the satya sindhu region is something that was highly populated densely populated for according to the standards of those times about 5000 years before today so every indian who lives in india today has ancestry from those from that period of time from that region right because afterwards once the great river saraswati dried out people had to migrate from satyasindhu eastwards to various parts of india so it is clear that the people of gujarat or the people of bangladesh bengal people of kashmir people of sri lanka tamil nadu etc everybody has some ancestry from the people who lived in the satyasindhu region 5000 years ago 
right? That is undeniable. And you can see that in India's genetic studies also. You can see that. So uh, the people of Saurashtra, the Kathi people or whoever they are, they will certainly have ancestry from the Sapta Sindhu region, which is right next door. I mean, Saurashtra, that region was very much part of the extended uh, Saraswati Sindhu uh, civilization, phase of India's civilization. So certainly that would be there. Now, did the fight against Alexander, we don't know about that. There is no evidence that says that the people of Saurashtra fought Alexander. They may have, but we don't know for sure. Now, what Druvik says is all these names, Saraostus, Sirastrini, Surastrini, etc. These are Greek names. Indians don't use Greek names. These are names by which the modern Saurashtra region was referred to in history by foreigners. We don't care what foreigners say. Their perspective is a foreign perspective. Okay, so uh, Saurashtra most likely was... Uh, it's The origin of the name seems to be Saurashtra, which means solar land. So solar land means the people who worship the sun. So that could be one of the origins of... Uh, the name of Saurashtra, either Saurashtra, which means the land of the sun, solar land, or Surashtra, which means a good land, a good country. Right. So these are two possible uh, origins, etymological origins of the name of this region, Saurashtra. It is also known that Saurashtra was ruled by the Indo-Scythians for a few centuries. Uh, people like Rudra, Daman, Rudra, Sindha, etc. So the Scythians were of Indian origin. They lived in Central Asia for a few thousand years. Then they re-entered India about 2,200 years ago. And many of them settled down in Western India. And their kings ruled these parts of the country. It is known that the, the Scythian kings, the Indo-Scythian kings, the Mahakshatrapas, ruled Western India, including Gujarat and Saurashtra, for a couple of centuries or so. And they were, by all accounts, very good kings. They were good Indian kings, Dharmic kings. And the Scythians, while they were in Central Asia, were known to be sun worshippers. They worshipped the sun. Our Persian brothers and sisters have, have, have recorded this, that the Scythians were sun worshippers. And the sun obviously is a, is a Vedic deity also. So maybe after they settled down in Saurashtra and they ruled the region for some time, maybe that could be one of the reasons why it was called Saurarashtra. So these are some possible origins of the name of this region. That's what we can say. Apart from that, our history textbooks don't say too much more about this. Okay, let's take one more question. There are lots more questions, but as always, I'm running out of time. So one more question. This is by Soham Chatterjee. Please help me. Please answer. I am a high school student. I am not so good at math. I try every time, but I score less than less in 80s or even 70s. I fear that I might not be able to pursue research in physics or computer science, things that I'm deeply fascinated about. Is there any way I can go become good at math again? Please guide me. I'm almost attributing my failure to my to maybe my low IQ. Please help me. So I think I've spoken to you, Soham, a couple of times on the live video chat. I spoke with you. You asked very interesting questions. And I could not see any signs of low IQ in you. I thought you were reasonably, you were quite bright. The questions you asked were very intelligent questions. So I don't see, I don't agree that you have low IQ. No, you don't. The thing about math is very simple. Math is just logic. Okay. So if you want to learn math well, all you have to do is go back. Maybe you're not 
uh, able to grasp certain concepts of mathematics very well maybe you're not good at algebra i'm just guessing okay maybe you're not good at algebra maybe you're not good at trigonometry perhaps maybe you're not good at integral or differential calculus or differential equations i'm just guessing so how do you address these deficiencies see mathematics is like a building you have a ground floor you have a first floor second floor third floor fourth floor fifth floor sixth floor 20th floor 30th floor 50th floor that sort of thing it's like building a skyscraper learning math is like building a skyscraper now if you are not doing well in algebra or trigonometry or calculus or whatever it means one of the foundations is weak maybe the fourth floor is weak maybe the fifth floor is weak so what you have to do is to go back to the fundamentals and master the fundamentals maybe you should go back to arithmetic i'm just giving an example if you want to be good at math first master arithmetic addition subtraction multiplication division fractions decimals all that once you can do that very well once you are really good at that which is very easy it's just logic once you can do that you will be good at algebra so then once you have mastered the fundamentals of arithmetic start with algebra and master the fundamentals always start at the very basics the very simple concepts if you follow that sort of approach of going back to the very basics revisiting the basics mastering them and then only then moving forward then you will be able to master math easily i think anybody can master mathematics mathematics is the simplest and most logical of all the sciences it looks difficult because we are trying to understand certain concepts before mastering the concepts that are at the root of those advanced concepts so that's all it is just go step by step base, go, go go back to mastering the basics and it should work out fine and i would suggest that you should uh, acquire some good practice books the only way to master mathematics is by solving lots of problems hundreds of problems maybe thousands of problems that's the only way to master mathematics so acquire maybe the shom series books those are very good for giving you all kinds of practice problems so that's what i would say all the best soham i don't think you are a low iq person at all nobody is low iq indians are the most intelligent people in the world among all among all the peoples in the world indians are the ones who invented mathematics it is in our blood indians are the most intelligent people in all the world so all the best soham be confident go back to the basics and you will be able to do well all right with that my friends i come to the end of today today's session very interesting questions as always i got so many questions i am only able to take a few but we will keep on doing this keep asking me your questions my dear friends and i will keep answering them i will answer as many of them as i can every week all right thank you so much appreciate your support appreciate your viewership and we will see we will meet again next week thank you take care bye